Hello again, everybody, and welcome to episode 19, the Jonathan Taves edition of Angles and Attitudes. He's John and I'm Mark. Today, our guest is joining us from north of the border. We just won't let uh, Biden and the health department know that he's uh, coming to us from across the border. He's an award-winning author. His works include three NHL-related biographies, as well as The Seven Keys of Hildegard, a historical fiction series. Angles and Attitudes is pleased to welcome David Dupuy to the podcast. David, thanks for joining think, us David? and welcome. Hey, Mark and John, thank you. It's my pleasure. Oh, hey, well, um, as part of the, as we got started here, the, the thing that was kind of the impetus for uh, the conversation is uh, my partner's love of goalies and one in particular. So I'm going to, as we can see from behind you, I'm going to turn it over now to John and uh, let him talk about one of his favorite goalies of all time. Yeah, he's, uh, there he yeah, is right there. There he is. <laughs> and, uh, there he is here, David. I got your book up here. Uh, awesome. Good. Again, as Mark said, good evening, uh, David. Yes, uh, the infatuation with Sawchuck, of course, for me is 1967. Uh, I happened to watch a series. I was just getting into hockey, and I watched the series uh, between the Blackhawks and the Maple Leafs at that time. He was he was on that Toronto team, the last Stanley Cup team um, uh, for Toronto, and yeah. uh, the Blackhawks were favored heavily. And heavily. In the book I that you have written about him, the Sawchuck, the troubles and triumphs of the world's greatest goalie. In the book, in the prologue, correct me if I'm wrong, yes, you depict correct. a Saturday afternoon in Chicago to the point when I bought the book in 1999. I think the book comes out 98, in 1998. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, goosebumps on the hair because you described that afternoon. And I still think to this day, that is the greatest goaltending exhibition that I ever saw when he shut down the Hawks after getting rifled at by Mr. Robert Marvin, Bobby Hall, a slap yeah. shot that brought him down like a dead deer. He was able to get back up after 30 minutes. And uh, the performance was uh, acrobatic circus act. And I guess my first question to you tonight, as uh, Mark has told me to open it up this way, your love for Sawchuck starts when? Oh, yeah. Uh, it started almost the same time. I remember uh, that series and... Uh, watching it up here in Canada. And um, those whole playoffs were Sawchuk saves it, Sawchuk saves it. And I was a goaltender like you. Yes. So uh, uh, he's that, that, that playoff series cemented my love for him. My, my, I, you know, we all get our idols at certain points in our life. And uh, same as you, that moment was for me. What was spectacular about that Saturday afternoon in Chicago is, um, Terry wasn't supposed to play. He had played the first four games of the series. He was dead tired. He was getting older. The Hawks had pummeled them with shots over and over. Um, and he really did not want to play. And Bauer uh, had a shaky first period. And uh, Punch went down the bench and said, Terry, you know, um, what do you think? And he says, ah, well, you know, if I have to, I'll start in a second. So Bauer was able to finish the period, and then uh, lo and behold, it's not very long into the into the period where where Bobby Hall levels him with a bullet 
And he was black and blue by this time. He was so sore sure. that for him to even participate in that game is amazing. For him to get leveled with a bullet on his very, very sore shoulder that was oh, black and blue. Marcel Pronoval told me that, uh, you know, the bruise went down to his hip. And yes. uh, for him to get back up, and, and it's funny because uh, my friend Pierre Pilat, who we'll talk about later, had skated through the crease and said, you know, you stay down if I were you type thing. And that was the worst thing you could say to Terry. So yeah. he got... He, he said to the trainer, help me up, Johnny. I'm, I'm going to stone those uh, bleep bleeps, you know. And that's what, that's what he did. I think Pierre doesn't wow. recall the moment when I spoke to him about it. But uh, he just shut the door. And uh, sometimes you're watching the game. The saves, in a way, don't look spectacular when you actually watch it. But um, he was such a master of angles and making things look easy sometimes that um, – for him to to shut them out for the next two periods uh, was just phenomenal. You know, to get to the book again, too, I mean, everything from that game, of course, going back to 1949 with the Detroit years, and then, of course, he gets traded to Boston, and then, of course, um, he's with Toronto, and then, of course, he moves on to California. He gets paid pretty heavily there with the Los Angeles Kings, but has a, yeah. a, a horrible year at expansion. And then, you know, he, he goes back to Detroit for a year to back up yeah. and Crozier. And then of course he winds up in New York and you know, that yeah. after the fatal year, of course he passes, but the way you depicted him, I mean, it was like, you know, you and him were talking, it, you made it seem so real to life. And this yeah, thing well, I share is called gold. Yeah. You know, when every every uh, biographer, uh, especially if it's a sports figure, um, the key to a good biography is for the family or the subject to give you, I call it the box. When you go to see them, they say, here is my clippings, here is my life, the stories about me. And the key was the Sochuk family gave me that. They gave me Terry's box, you know, and I brought this big box box back from Michigan, north of the border, to my small town here in Penetanguishene. And uh, the amazing thing was, as I started working on the book, I'm a four o'clock in the morning writer. I start really early. House is nice and quiet. And I would make my coffee, and I'd go down to my rec room and, and open up Terry's stuff that would be spread around me. And I'd say, okay, Terry, what are you going to throw at me today? And, you know... It really often felt like he was there with me. Oh. Um, it was an eerie feeling, you know, and I'd come across his, his New York Times uh, jigsaw puzzles, word puzzles, you know, and in his own writing, you know. And that was such a weird thing. But um, I think, I got, like Marcel Pornival said, um, David, you got to know him better than anybody else in the world except for Pat. And even parts of what Pat didn't know you knew. Sure. So uh, I got to thinking that I, I got to uh, be pretty close and understand this Terry fella. If he had been living, would he have allowed me to write the book? I'm not sure. Right. But uh, Pat always says uh, if he was around to give you the blessing of this book, he would have because it brought to the to the fore the situations with alcohol and problems. And it's not easy being famous. And, um, you know, it right. can be hard on your family. Hard on your marriage. Terry was a prime example of that. 
Suzanne, you know, I, I, I want to move to Mark for a second. If we could talk a little bit, I don't want to shut down the saw check yet, but I want to go to Red Kelly before we go to Pierre, because I know Mark has uh, some things to say to you about the Red Kelly book. Uh, I will, <laughs> I'll be glad to take that. But I will, even though I'm the only non-goalie on the podcast today, okay, so the th three and a third representing the defenseman in this particular in this particular scenario, two questions around Sawcheck. Was that, that privateness more um, representative of a goalie, number one? And number two, would there be a comparison? You mentioned angles and making stuff look easier. Would there be a modern day comparative goalie that you would say, and again, they look so different because of the equipment and the size yeah. and all that. But if you said yeah. so-and-so would be the modern day version of the way Terry Sacek played goal. I think the last goaltender, not there are none of the, that type today. They all go down to their knees before the shot's even gone. But uh, Martin Brodeur would have been the last goaltender to uh, incorporate Stand up style, face the puck, cut down the angle, and also flop down. Martin could do both of them, but uh, he was the last goalie who could play the way uh, the stand up guys back in their day did. And you know, it's so much easier just to stand up, it's easier on your body. Uh, I think that was a real secret to Martin Broder's longevity and the, the goalies of that time because up and down on your knees, it gets tough after a while. That's a sure. long career. And uh, so for sure, uh, Broder would be the last guy. Okay, he had that crazy you. crouch, Terry. He had a low crouch. Uh, yeah. Which, but he was his able to move His wife would say that uh, she could put a cup of coffee on his back and it wouldn't <laughs> spill. Sure. Well, yeah. so much of that was talked about in the finals where, you know, that those top corners and the guy went down too early. And if he would just stand up and play his angle or hold the post, that area totally. is not exposed and the guy doesn't score then. So uh, yeah, yeah. your point on that one as well. Yeah, so, totally. The Red Kelly book, um, as a, just as a general human, I'm thinking to myself, you got nothing to talk about there with him. Two different careers, politics and everything in between and just being a wonderful man. How do you even begin to get that box that's the equivalent of two or three to begin to call that down into the into the book that you wrote about Red Kelly, yeah. Well, I had read uh, met Red first uh, first off through the the Sawchuk book because Red played with him Detroit, Toronto, and then also coached him in L.A. Um, so that's how I met Red. But Pierre Pilat, we're going to be talking about Pierre, but Pierre uh, was the reason I reconnected with Red at a a, a stamp. Uh, ceremony in Toronto for Pierre that was the top six defenseman of the old era with Bobby Orr and Pierre and uh, Harry Howell and uh, Doug Harvey and um, Red was there obviously as the sixth defenseman for Detroit and uh, we got talking about uh, he'd remembered, remembered me and we had a good chat and um, at the time my partner and I uh, Waxy Grigware were, were looking for a project and and uh, Red, in his modest way, didn't say much, but his daughter mentioned that, well, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe dad could be ready for a book. He was only like uh, 88 at the time, <laughs> you know. Um, he said he might be ready by now. You know, we'd have to talk to him. 
So it was so funny because uh, I called him to do the book. And he said, well, I don't think so. I'm not too sure, you know. Uh, I have, I don't know. I'm not sure. So I said, tell you what, I'll send you a Sawchuk book. So I sent him a Sawchuk book. He read it. I called him. He said, oh, that was pretty good. Uh, but I'm still not sure. I said, okay, I'll send you a Pierre book. So I sent him the Pierre Pilat story. He read that. I called him. Oh, he says, I loved it. That was very good. He says, I said, well, what do you think? Are you ready? Well, I'm not too sure. So I had done a, Red was very devout Catholic. So I had done a, a book in my hometown about, we have a, a large cathedral uh, in our hometown. And I had done a picture table, tabletop book about that church. So I said, tell you what, Red, I'll send you a ch this book on our church called St. Anne's. Sent him the book. He no sooner got it, he calls me. He said, I'm ready to do the story. <laughs> You so know, the Saint Anne sealed the deal. Yeah, so oh, the Lord wow. intervened. You went to a higher power. I went and, to a uh, higher power, and, and you got it done there. But his career yeah. from Detroit, Toronto, playing defense, moving to forward, Parliament, phenomenal. Just, uh, comment on that a little bit. I, I, I often call Red the greatest all-around hockey player there has ever been. Uh, you know, you can take the Gretzkys, the Howes, whoever you want, but. In his day with Detroit, for example, he would play almost 55 minutes a game because he was power play. He was the penalty kill, played his regular shift. If they needed a goal, if they needed to stop a goal. Excuse Sorry. No, no problem. Uh, We're good. Uh-oh. Did we lose David? Uh, I think he'll be back. Am I back? You're back, yeah, David. You're back. I almost I, found out about technology it. Technology throws me off. Technology throws me off. I have ah, a no new problem. iPhone. So, um, um, he's I'm, playing I'm 55 minutes. Oh, he's yeah. Playing. Yeah. He played 55 minutes constantly. And, uh, you know, he uh, in the summers worked on a tobacco field. The family owned a tobacco farm. And, um, Picking tobacco is very hard. He used to say that he would go to training camp for a rest <laughs> and he would be in such good shape that playing 55 minutes a game to him was nothing. He, he was such a great, strong, all-around skater. And that's why, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was the first rushing defenseman. Uh, Pierre Pallot followed him, of course, then followed by Bobby Orr. But uh, Red in his day, uh, at his, he won the first Norris Trophy when there was a, a trophy for defensemen. And that year, Red almost won every trophy available to him. You know, and I think he was one of the top scorers, period, in the league. Sure. So, which was unheard of for his time. So, David, was there a disconnect with Jack Adams in Detroit, and that's why this whole Toronto thing came about? Yeah, he didn't. Uh, he didn't take kindly to. Uh, to being told uh, from Jack Adams, but he didn't like the uh, the way the trade was done. He thought he had given his heart and soul to the wings and uh, to all of a sudden, um, you know, before he was traded, you know, they talk about the big Bob Bond goal, you know, played on a broken ankle and scored the, the overtime winner. Well, in the playoff series before he was traded, the year before he was traded, well, uh, Red broke uh, his ankle halfway through the season. 
and they put a cast on it. Uh, we're talking around Christmas time, and um, this, the Leafs, uh, the uh, the Red Wings went into a spin. They were lost three games in a row. So Adams came to him and said, "Hey, uh, you know, do you think you could play tomorrow night?" And Red said, "Red was a, a very good team man. He would do anything for the team." And he said, "Well, he said, well, the, the doctors have told us Red that you can't hurt your ankle anymore um, if you tape it up and you know freeze it, we'll, you'll be okay." So he played the last thirty-three games of the season on a broken ankle. Wow! Now. His play obviously suffered. Um, he did the job. He says, you know, I couldn't push off with that one foot. I, if I went into a corner, he said, well, normally I'd take the guy out. I kind of had to rub it and kind of give him a bit of leeway. And um, they was talking the league about, you know, Red's uh, career is getting washed up. He didn't play as good. And he was quite ticked that management, of course, never came out and said the reason why. And um, so the next year, um, he's back to himself, playing well. His ankles, ankles healed. And um, a reporter from Toronto, uh, Trent Brain, came in to interview him and said, you know, Red, you're looking pretty good this year. Things are much better. And, uh, you know, you always had to watch newspaper man. You know, you, you never knew what to say to him. But Mr. Sawchuk was especially wary of talking to them but uh so finally red said well you know they might have to do something with with the ankle and brain's ears went right up and said oh really what what's that about and he said well i guess i could tell you now the season's over it was last year and i i had broken ankle i played half a year on a broken ankle and he said what really so the next day the headlines where Red Wings forced Red Kelly to play on a broken ankle for 33 games. Wow. Well, the very next day after that, New York's coming into town. And uh, Adams calls Red in and said, you report tomorrow morning uh, to the uh, Rangers. We're trading you. Red said, oh, really? Well, I'll think about it. And I guess Adams came up to him, put his little finger into his knows and said, what do you mean you'll think about it? And he said, just what I said. And he decided not to go to New York, refused the trade, and would have rather quit, which he did. Uh, Punch Imlach and, Red, and uh, uh, King Clancy realized the great player Red was. And they said, we got to figure out how to, how to get, get a hold of Red Kelly. And they, they, and they flew him into uh, Toronto in a disguise. Uh, Punch Imlach uh, not punch him. King Clancy met him at the airport and didn't even recognize him. He had a hat on and a scarf and a big coat. And, you know, it was like a disguise, like an espionage thing. Right. And of course, the great story about that is they, he brought him into the Maple Leaf Gardens. They chatted. And then they said, well, we're going to go out for supper. So they go to a local restaurant. Who are there? But the Canadians. The Canadian uh, Rocket Richard looks up and he says, hey, Rouge. You know, Red, how are you? Fine. And Red said, right away, Rocket knew what was going on. And he says, of course, uh, the, the next night, Red faced off against him, against John Beliveau. He wanted, uh, Punch wanted him to be the guy. He said, to beat the Canadians, we have to stop Beliveau. The only guy I know who can stop Beliveau 
is Red Kelly. And then, uh, you know, to go from the greatest defenseman of his era to one of the top centers uh, sure. is just phenomenal. And then, you know, you throw in the fact that a few years later, he becomes a member of parliament. And he's a member of parliament and playing hockey at the very same time. Never missed a session of parliament, never missed a game. He missed a few practices, but, um, you know, in a two-year span, him and Andra, his wife, had two babies, uh, won two elections, and won two Stanley Cups. I mean, wow. nobody could do that. And he never slept, right? And, no. and <laughs> we he was tired get, a lot. We can't get representatives our country who work for a living in those jobs to show up <laughs> on a regular basis for a vote. Right, Mark? But, but John, uh, I, I to refer to my notes here, but I'm looking just... Kelly was 39, a leader on a team. The last time they won a Stanley Cup included players over 30. Johnny Bauer, Sawchuk, George Armstrong, Tim Horton, Alan Stanley, and Marcel Pronovost on Absolutely. defense. When you think yeah. about Toronto Maple Leaf fans and how long they've waited, those are the wow. names that people would have to relate to to tie it back to the last time the Maple Leafs won a Stanley Cup. That 66-67 season, yeah. Yeah. They That's were an experience. Can you give us they were the perfect team to upset Chicago because they didn't panic. You know, they right, knew because coming of the in veterans. That, boy, the power, the, the power we're going to face here. But they hit, hit, hit. The idea was to slow down Makita and Hull and that whole gang and uh Pierre. Uh and and they did. It was a tough series, and uh, uh they knew they couldn't keep up with the Hawks, they had to slow them down. And sure. uh, Sacha also gave them the edge. Well, um, one more question. Red Kelly, Parliament, the changing of the flag. That's another one that in doing the research, I was just amazed that again, a Stanley Cup champion um, wearing two hats had such an impact on the changing in the, uh, of, the, of the flag. Yes, he was a member of the, member of the Liberal Party. Uh, it was, uh, Prime Minister Lester Pearson, who had approached him to, to run for the Liberals and, and enter Parliament. And uh, Red happened to be there during the great flag debate up here. It was very contentious. Uh, we had British uh, ties to the old red ensign. That was the flag of Britain. And it was the same flag of Canada. And uh, Lester Pearson, the Prime Minister, was determined that Canada would have its own flag. And, uh, you know, he turns to uh, one of the uh, most... Uh, patriotic of Canadians who's in his back bench and Red Kelly gives a couple of speeches about how he uh, you know was so uh, proud to be a Canadian and he uh, had toured Korea representing the NHL and, and, and visiting the soldiers and um, that he was proud to be a Canadian and that the thing that was most most emblematic of Canada was a maple leaf and he said he uh, talked about the the craziness of the debate because clearly the Maple Leaf was always a symbol of Canada, and to have that on the new flag, and uh, you know to to make Canada more independent, have our own flag away from Britain, uh, he was he was monumental in changing many many uh, many many uh, people's minds. It's amazing stuff, and and uh, what wow. you used the term a, a life well lived. John, I'm going to turn it over to you, but I'm going to ask that your first question is around 
the sweater that David's wearing today. <laughs> you better yeah. believe it. Uh, David, number three, the first number three number sweater three, yeah. of Mr. Palat. Uh, I know we had another number three here in town when during uh, yeah. Mark and my era, Keith Magnuson, yeah. but the number three, Pierre Palat. And of course, uh, David, I always get the Depew fun going. I have the Pierre <laughs> Palat book also. Awesome. And uh, my daughter who worked for the Chicago Blackhawks, I was there at oh. a sign and we got awesome. it signed by Pierre in 2013. I think it was her 14. Yeah, 13, um, yes. I'll tell you. I have to, the first question I'd like to ask you about the book again, you outdo yourself uh, with the, I think it's Mr. Waxy um, Gregor. Is it Waxy yourself and Waxy Gregor on this Waxy, book? yes, yes. Yeah, but again, you outdo yourself. Uh, matter of fact, I've been watching clips of a film that your name is put on too, a little, little 30 minute uh, synopsis. I know Mark saw something with Bobby Orr that I want to get to, but. You know, the ending on the back of this book, there's something that I know you'll remember. It says, you know, Bobby Hall and Stan Makita are the glamour boys of the Blackhawks. And accordingly, Hall and Makita received the most of the publicity in ink. However, the more the mounting evidence indicates that Palak has long been, as we say here, the heart of the Chicago mm. Blackhawks. Exactly. What kind of a person was Pierre Palak? Oh, man. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, <laughs> my first little Pierre story is I'm researching the Sawchuk book. Pierre lived 10 minutes away from me. I did. I, you know, I found that out. So uh, I called him and he agreed to to let me interview him. So I goes over. He had just moved into his new house. Uh, it's in a small hamlet called Wyvale. And uh, so I, I walk in and the house is in disarray. They're just moving him, him and Annie. And uh, he says, Mr. Dupuy, you're going to earn your interview today. I said, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, do you see that couch right there? I said, yep. You and I are carrying it to the basement. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, that just cemented our friendship. We had a great interview. And then he started calling me. And then uh, we became the very best of friends. And uh, it was an honor to, uh, to get to know him. Um, you know, we talked almost twice a week, sometimes daily. Um, but we had to convince them to do the book because, you know, these guys are private. You know, when they agree to, to do a book, um, you know, you're a pain in the butt to them for a while. You could be calling them every day. You're getting together to do long interviews. Um, and so Pierre uh, also knew that that would happen with him. And... Uh, but he was such a studious man, you know. He often said, I studied the greats. I watched Doug Harvey. I learned from Doug Harvey. I watched his mistakes. And he says, I got at the end that I knew Doug Harvey better than Doug Harvey. Wow. You know, I could anticipate him better than what he was. He knew what he was going to do. And uh, Pierre was a great guy. Um, you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote the book. Uh, I did his speech the night that uh, they honored his number three with Keith Magnuson. They were both number three retired the same night. And uh, that's what this sweater is. I was looking for a, a Pierre Pilat sweater for the longest time. And I said, Pierre, I can't find, where would I get one? And he said, well, I don't know. So we had a family gathering here uh, and uh, 
not long after that ceremony. And he shows up with a little bag. And uh, he said, here, this is for you. I pull it out and it's a sweater. Wow. And he said, that's, that's the sweater I wore the night they retired my number. I wore it on the ice. I went, oh. wow. Yeah. So this is Pierre with us tonight. Beautiful. That's yeah. it. it. Looks great on you. That's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, spoken by guys from Chicago, for sure. There you go. Yeah, we're a little biased. But yeah, that's in, all right. In watching some of the video, like John said, I noticed that even his children were, um, I would say, not, well, maybe reserved is the right word. They were always kind of like talking about, we always wanted to think of him as dad, while everybody else thought about him as Pierre Pilat, the Blackhawks. Yeah you yeah. know, captain or Norris Trophy winning uh, player. Was that kind of an offshoot of him, his personality as well? Yeah, for sure. He was he was uh, around the house, always dad, down to earth uh, with me. Uh, and Waxy, who helped write the book, um, he was Pierre. You know, uh, when he passed away, uh, a, a couple of news outlets stopped, talked to us and, and said, well, yeah, Pierre was great, but but to us, Pierre was Pierre. He was the friendly guy who always came over, was with us. And if you didn't know he was such a great Hall of Fame hockey player, you wouldn't know it mm -hmm. because he was very humble, uh, proud of his accomplishments. You know, uh, um, he talked about uh, winning the Stanley Cup in 61 with Chicago, but he says, ah, you know, we, we should have won more of them. You know, yeah. we had the power and the talent and uh, – we had great goaltending as well. You know, it's funny how John enamored with uh, with Terry Sawchuk, but you had a great one there with Glenn Hall. I mean, oh. you know, wow, it doesn't get any better than Glenn Hall either. So who Glenn Hall also told me that uh, he considered Sawchuk the greatest goalie of all time. Yes, he did. So, yeah. But so, Pierre was a very great, humble man, full of talent. And, you know, he was just a little guy for mm -hmm. being so rough and tough, you know, uh, the year that uh, they won the cup, he had the most penalty minutes in the playoffs. He was, you know, he was banging and scraping and he didn't shy away from anybody. And he had his fair share of tussles. So he, he was, the word to com, com, describe Pierre the most would be competitive. He was the most competitive person, you know, whether it was playing chess or playing hockey or whatever, you know, uh, he was they all were competitive they all you have to be competitive to be great but did he, was there another side of him when he's out with the boys a, a a story you might want to tell when he was out with makita or hull or that were his personality because i noticed we would go to the blackhawk conventions and he would hold his own with brent seabrook on a dais or whatever he was quite um quick with a quip and a little bit of sarcasm oh, yeah. that he carried himself. He was always a lot of fun because he was kind of sneaky in that regard. He, he wasn't. He had a real sense of humor. And he had always had a quick comeback. You know, <laughs> no matter yeah. what you said to him, he could come back with a little remark that, and he had a little smirk, mm -hmm. a remark with a smirk. And, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, he was, he says that he was the, uh, they went on a trip to Europe, he and Bobby Hull. They played with the Rangers one year. They got put out in 57. They got put out early of the playoffs. Or I'm not even sure if they even made the playoffs. But anyway, um, no, they didn't make the playoffs. So they went with New York uh, to uh, Europe, to a tour. NHL played 12, 14 games uh, in England and, and throughout Europe. And Bobby 
was with them, him and Bobby. And he talked about that's where Bobby became the golden jet. You know, uh, until then, he, he was a great player. But during that time with Pierre, where he and Pierre could really do the give and take of a rush. Um, and he said, that's where Bobby Hall and the Golden Jets started. The very next season, they came, when they started the season the next year in 57, 58, um, Bobby Hall was the Golden Jet and uh, would fly wow. up the ice. Pierre, throw him the puck. He'd throw it back. Pierre was a great rushing defenseman. I mean, yes. uh, you know, he often said Glenn Hall didn't like him because he left him home alone a lot. <laughs> you know, I got to so, tell you, uh, David, there's a great line by Palat uh, in a film that I saw. He would always say when he'd set up behind the net for the breakout of a pass, he'd always say Bobby would come and get the puck, but he'd always say to Bobby, let me just touch it so I get an assist. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. the defenseman in me. That's right. You get that second assist. You've got to be nice right, to the referee. Yeah. You get an assist awesome. without even being on the ice. You're plus. I hear you. You get a plus. Well, that was Bobby Orr used to say that. He would talk. Uh, he'd tap Jerry Cheevers on the pads before the game started and say, I'll see you after the game. Because yeah. he was never in the zone either there, too. So. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, well, you we know, could, they say the best defense is an offense. If the pucks are not in your end, no problem, right? Exactly. So, um, we're going to, there's no other way to switch gears because uh, we've been, you've been great with your time, but so we go to, and you had mentioned the comment about the, the, the coffee table book about the, uh, the cathedral, which leads yeah. me into how do you go from Red Kelly, Pierre Plot, and Terry Sacek to the seven keys of Hildegard ground? I hear you. I know a matter of, well, the thing is that um, this book, had uh, been in my mind for 40 years before the hockey books. Uh, in 1978, um, there was a Pope named John Paul I, who was only Pope for 33 days. He died suddenly, right after being elected. And uh, I got interested in uh, papal history and uh, that whole event of, of uh, the Pope dying. And I almost knew right away that I, I, I wanted to write a book about a, a boy who would be and destined to be the Pope at the end of the world. And so at that time I wrote 2000 pages by hand. I didn't know how to type. Wow. And uh, so, you know, life gets in the way. Uh, Palat, Sacha, Hall. Uh, I worked, I was almost at a Glenn Hall book, uh, missed out on it, but, uh, and then read Kelly. And then I volunteer a lot. I chair my local sports hall of fame here in our town and uh, volunteering a lot, family and job. So it's my children that finally said, as I was just finishing the Red Kelly book, they had read some of those early 2000 handwritten pages. And uh, my son particularly said, dad, enough with the hockey books you got to get to that Pope story. That's your story. That's, you know, wow. and um, so about five years ago, I, I returned to it. And at that time, it was going to be a, a one book story. Um, and it didn't take me long that I realized this is going to be more than one book. And um, at the time, I realized that um, I needed more than just a, I, I needed to expand the story. You know, Da Vinci Code had come out, it was big. Uh, 
the Celestine prophecy in the nineties was big. And um, I needed to uh, find a new angle, a, a different angle. So I researched seers and saints who had had visions of the end times. And lo and behold, I come across Hildegard. More I researched her, the more I thought, this is my girl. She was an amazing woman uh, in her time in the 12th century. She was what was considered a polymath, the first polymath. Polymath is someone who excels at everything. Everything they do, they excel at. And so she was a theologian. She was a musician. She uh, had her own abbey. She was uh, an amazing first person to really uh, decipher the making of beer. Imagine, a nun. So uh, <laughs> I uh, researched her and then uh, I decided, okay, Hildegard's my girl. So the, the, the amazing thing is the night that I decided, I went to bed December 4th. 19, 2017, I could not sleep. I woke up in the morning. I live on Georgian Bay right on the water and the sunrise is right in front of me. So I take, usually take daily sunrise shots and put them on my Facebook page. So that morning I decided Hildegard, my girl, I go out of my deck, the sun's starting to come up. And next thing you know, a, a cross forms. When the sun comes up over the horizon, it dissects with some clouds. And it made a flaming cross. Now, hard to describe, but this cross lasted for eight minutes. I was able to take 44 pictures of it. I took it from different corners of my deck down on the beach. from in Because if I hadn't the pictures, I'd have thought I was crazy. But it, that gave me affirmation that, okay, away I go. So I've, I've uh, started book one, started book two. Um, and it's a series that about... You know, it's amazing. I've worked very hard to make, which was going to be one book. I think it's going to be end up being seven books. I've just published the third one. But um, it's a churchy story that I've tried very hard not to make churchy. And amazingly, I think I accomplish it. Uh, you know, people in the world are, are may not be religious, uh, but everybody's spiritual. Mm -hmm. And uh, my series taps into that. So... The book one uh, of mercy and of death takes place between 1917 and um, 1938. Book two takes place between 1938 and 1958. Book three takes place between 1958 and 1978. Um, so it's a series about uh, popes and bishops and cardinals in the church and good and evil, good guys and bad guys. And uh, it's primarily based on prophecies that Hildegard had back in the 12th century. And it's a historical fiction where facts and fiction are woven into one to make it a complete story. And um, I'm involved with a, a filmmaker right now who sees it as a series wow. for television. Excellent. And um, We've just signed a contract to get started, but he says, you know, as I read reading your three books, I used to Google you to see if you were correct. And he said, darn it, everything I checked that you wrote was exactly dead on. So he said, I've come to the conclusion I'm not Googling you anymore because I know that whatever you've written is deadly accurate. And uh, 
So I'm, I'm really excited and proud about this series to go. You're right to go from uh, writing hockey books to writing about popes and churches. And, uh, you know, it's a combination of the Thornbirds, the Exorcist, Love Story, the Da Vinci Code, the Celestine Prophecy, the Shoes of the Fisherman. I mean, it's it's all of them together. Um, and uh, it's about a boy who's eventually destined to be the last Pope at the end of time. And part of it takes place here in my hometown. It's amazing in the sense that you're talking about, you know, and we, we that would be another whole series or another whole, could be a whole it could be a whole interview <laughs> right but to, to kind of bring it back in the sense that it's interesting for you to be able to see that being uh involved in sports and being passionate about sports football baseball hockey or whatever it is is not mutually exclusive from having a spiritual element in your life because it, it, it seems there's a lot where people want to go oh yeah he's just a churchy guy so all he ever does is pray and he doesn't cuss and he doesn't have a cocktail. Red Kelly, Red Kelly never cussed. Right. But well, even who we watch now, um, Mark Shifley, they, they put a mark, a mic on uh, Mark Shifley with the Jets and he's foo-foo this or foo-foo that and he never cusses. But you can be living in both of those worlds more or less simultaneously. And it's great to be able to show that it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. It's like yeah, a second for sure. nature for you writing these, uh, this series, uh, what I'm getting out of this, David. It was just like, you know, your love, your passion for this was, you know, it came me, I feel like it, the way you described it to me and Mark here tonight, uh, it's, it's, you know, something that it was always ingrained in you. It was, like I said, 40 years ago when I was 20, uh, you know, I started this, this story was in my head and it would not go away. And, um, I've always dabbled with it, but everything else got in the way. And it wasn't until my son said, okay, dad, enough with the hockey books. You've done great. I mean, the Red Kelly won an award. Uh, yes. We're very proud of it. Red, Red, you know how competitive is? Red was uh, at a book signing with Eddie Shack, And Eddie Shack says, oh, you know, Red, I wrote a book too. And Red says, yeah, Eddie. But he says, yours didn't win an award. <laughs> <laughs> so we were very proud. We're very proud of that. We're very proud that I think the book, the Red Kelly story, I think was the catalyst to getting his number retired. Beautiful. And they retired his number just in time. He died a few months later, barely made the award ceremony. But we're proud that we think that uh, Mike Illich, Mr. Illich, uh, had read the book. We talked about extensively how it was a shame. Gordy Howe talked about it was a shame that his number had never been retired. And I mean, they waited till he was like 92. Uh, but thank God he got to see it before he passed. Yes. That's beautiful. Well, and, and on the um, awards, I noticed back in, uh, I know it's, it's back in 95 and you had mentioned the, the volunteer, your award for volunteerism. We don't wanna uh, omit that because that's more important well, in terms of legacy and, and giving back to the community. Sure. So uh, good on you for that. And, and yeah. Time-wise, you've been just, this has been, we'll tell you right now, this has been the longest interview that we've had and we've <laughs> loved every minute of it. And right. we want, I'm going to say right now, we want you back, but I'm going to turn right. it over to John for, for a wrap up. Okay. Uh, I iterate Mark's words, uh, David, tonight for me, and just listening to you, I would please, 
we want you to come back. And I have to say this, how to close this tonight. Um, I am so glad I walked into a bookstore, 1998-99, Barnes and Noble here in Illinois, and uh, picked up that book. And uh, I've reached out to you a few times with emails and stuff. And you were always very gracious to me. And, you know, some, but I'll I'll tell you, tonight is the honor of honors. I always call this gentleman up, my partner, Mark, and I tell him, Mark, what did you think of the interview? I got to tell you, tonight I'm floored by all the things you did and said. And I'll tell you, I have to hold this up for you. I bought this the same time I bought the book, the Saw Chuck book. I have never taken it out of the box. It is a life. It's it's a McFarland of Saw Chuck. They tell me that it's worth a lot of money, so I never took it out of the box. But I have to tell you, David DePue, this is the ultimate honor for me and Mark tonight. You truly are an award-winning author and a great person. Awesome. I'm so happy to join you and. I will definitely be back. You say the word. Sounds great, David. Stay well. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you, guys. Take care.